So as the mayor of Chicago for 18 years, Kidding, kidding aside, I, I'm so grateful to be here, and, and I, I certainly uh, wish, wish the mayor all, all of our best. Uh, I know he's had some health issues, and uh, I know he's in all of our hearts and prayers. Uh, so I am an entrepreneur, not a mayor, uh, but I have some ideas to share with you today, and ideas specifically around reinvention. I was building one of my companies, and uh, I just received a verbal commitment for $3 million of additional capital from my current investor. So based on this commitment, I hired new people, I took expensive ads, I bought some new office space, I was all in. And I got this call. Hey Josh, you know that $3 million that we talked about? Well, here's the thing. This was the year 2000, the, the dot-com market has crashed. We've decided to get out of investing altogether, so there's no money for you, no support, you're on your own, but don't take it personally. <laughs> don't take it personally. I'm sure you've had the stomach flu, but that, that's exactly how I felt. My stomach was in a knot. I was sweaty. I was clammy. I didn't know if I was going to faint. I mean, this, this was heavy stuff because I could see all the work that my colleagues and I had done up until that point falling into the abyss. And I realized that what happened next would likely shape the rest of my career. So what happened next was three months of absolute painful, difficult times clawing and scratching, trying to save our company, trying to save our dreams. And it all came down to one moment, one day. I'm sure many of us have had these moments in our lives or in our careers or even in our studies. It was a Friday afternoon, I'll never forget. I was to have a regularly scheduled all-company meeting, which at the time was maybe 50 people. The problem was, that was the same day that payroll was due. I woke up that morning with zero dollars in our bank account. I did everything I could. I stretched it all out. I finally hit the wall. This was it. This was the defining day. And I was trying to get new investments, and I, we were right at the edge. And I literally prepared two speeches. I didn't know what I was going to be saying to my team that day. Did we save the company, or did we have to padlock the doors? And everyone's paycheck bounced, and everyone's dreams shattered. Thankfully, I'm not exaggerating, 15 minutes before our company was gone. I received, by the grace of God, a wire transfer from new investors. And I walked into this meeting, exhausted, sweating, and said, team, we saved the company. That little company went on to grow and grow, and, and you may have heard of it. It's called E-Prize, not Art Prize, P.S., <laughs> here in Grand Rapids. Uh, but we did, we did di digital promotions and technology, and uh, it grew to be the largest internet company in the state of Michigan, 500 employees, and we ended up selling it in 2012. It was the state's largest uh, internet exit in, in, our, in our history. So the reason I say this is not a heroic tale. It's quite the opposite. I won the fight by sheer luck, but it was a fight that I should have never had to take on at all. So it happened because I failed as a leader. Great leadership would have been six months earlier when the stock market began to decline when my dot-com customers were drying up. That's when I needed to assume a better, stronger sense of leadership and reinvent our company. So had I reinvented early from a position of strength, I wouldn't have had to endure the agony of clawing back from behind. And that's such a powerful lesson, frankly, that we can all learn. 
in business, but in our community and even in our families. The best of the best reinvent early and often, and they think about it as an ongoing process rather than a a once-a-decade type of event. So with that in mind, I have a question for you. If you take a look at these logos, these businesses on the screen, maybe just shout it out. What do you think that they have in common? Gone? Out of business? Yes. What else do you, do you, those are true. What else do you notice? What did they fail to do? Reinvent, to innovate, to change. The other thing that really strikes me, folks, is that at one point, these were the dominant players in their field. These were the market leaders. And when you see the demise of organizations or even people's careers or, or communities, this pattern happens again and again. Once great organizations become intoxicated by their own success, and they believe wrongfully that success is a permanent state, as if you've cracked the code and it will go on forever. But really, success happens in the context of many external factors that today are changing at a rate like none other in history. So, had Blockbuster reinvented from a position of strength, they would have become Netflix. Had Kodak reinvented from a position of strength, instead of filing bankruptcy, perhaps they would have been Instagram. Again, we see this message play out again and again. And it's not just in business. I'm from Detroit. I'm a hardcore, multi-generational Detroiter. My grandparents were born in the city, my parents, and of course, I was born in the city. I'm very, very proud of, of, our, of our hometown. Um, but as you know, we've suffered greatly. Ironically, 100 years ago, we were the Silicon Valley of our country. That is where people would come to build their fortunes and, and to innovate and to create. But what happened is we didn't reinvent. In other words, first we started out as a fur trading organ- company, and we did lumber, and then, and, then our, and then our city got into manufacturing. And as we rolled with the times, our city prospered. We were known as the Paris of the Midwest. We built gorgeous buildings and roads and universities. Population soared. But then because we got caught up in that, we almost did a 180, and we became enamored by our own successes. We felt untouchable. So we moved on, and then instead of creating things, we got into protectionism and blame and entitlement and finger-pointing, and our city crumbled. Same type of pattern. When successful organizations fail to change, fail to reinvent, uh, they're in for a world of hurt. We're going to talk about Detroit, though, a little bit more, because now, again, Detroit is in the midst of an incredible transformation, uh, one that's making history and one that I feel very blessed to be a small part of. So the challenge that we have here in our communities and in academics and, of course, in, in business is that the world is very, very different than it was just a few years ago. And what we know is that the models of the past no longer work. We can no longer rely on how we used to do things and hope for the same result. Think about it. Today we live in a world of dizzying speed, exponential complexity, and ruthless competition. So what it all boils down to is we have to fight back, but the weapons, the tools that we have to fight back have changed. And when you really boil it down, the one element that each of us has is our God-given talent to be creative. So what's happened is that creativity, raw human creativity, has become the currency of success. That's the one thing that can't be outsourced. That's our one source of sustainable competitive advantage. 
So what I want you to consider, no matter what your job title is today, and I say job title is a broad term, you may be retired, you may be a student, you may be a faculty here, or you may be a part of the business community. But I think each of us need an unwritten title, that of reinventor, or disruptor, or artist, or entrepreneur. You don't have to have a hoodie and be a 23-year-old software engineer to be an entrepreneur. You don't have to start a company to be an entrepreneur. To me, an entrepreneur is someone who's a change agent, somebody who's willing to take on the status quo and improve, whether that's a community effort or even improving a, a church or a community organization. Knowing that we need more creativity, we need more innovative approaches to the increasingly difficult challenges in our world, unfortunately, we're facing a big problem. And the problem is that most of us grew up learning how to not be creative. Think back when you were in school. You were probably taught to follow the rules. Guess what the teacher knows? There's only one right answer. And whatever you do, don't make any mistakes. The problem is, if you run that game plan in the real world, it's a surefire path to mediocrity. Doing exactly the opposite is what allows us to soar. There was an incredible study. They were trying to understand the impact that young, uh, elementary schools and, and uh, before college schools are having on people's levels of creativity. So they asked kids who are entering kindergarten a simple question. Are you creative? 98% of those kids raised their hand. Yeah, I'm a creative person. They asked the same question next to graduating high school seniors. The numbers dropped a little bit. Can you guess what they dropped to? 20%, I think I heard, 40 maybe, 10, 5, 2%. 2%, how does that happen? We send our kids to go to school to prepare them to meet the challenges of the day, and we're going in the exact opposite direction. So instead of growing into creativity as we, as we need to, as we must, we're growing out of it. Now, I'm not vilifying teachers. Teachers are heroes. The problem is that we have largely an outdated system that was built for a different era. There's this whole business about no kid getting left behind. If we keep doing that, all kids are going to get left behind. So the reason I bring all this up here today is that each of us, me include all of us, grew up in a similar type environment. Maybe you were in third grade and your teacher said you weren't very good at art and you labeled yourself as a non-creative person. That can stay with you for decades. But here's the good news, now that I've bummed you out. <laughs> here's the good news. Harvard University runs a study, and they ask the age-old question, is creativity born or is it developed? Is it nature or nurture? What they found is amazing. They found that creativity is actually 85% learned behavior. Think about what that means for a minute. That means you and I, on our groggiest day, have 85% the creative capacity as Mozart or Da Vinci or Picasso. Do you notice a disconnect? 98% of adults don't feel creative, yet all of us, not one out of a thousand, all of us have enormous creative abilities that were given to us by God as, by, as part of the human condition. So if we can solve that disconnect, we can go on to do incredible things in our, in our professional and personal lives. So as mentioned earlier, uh, I've had the privilege, really, of, of writing two books. Uh, my most recent book, this, earlier this last year, uh, it's called The Road to Reinvention. I talk about both professional and personal reinvention, 
and also share in every chapter a piece about Detroit and how, in certain cases, Detroit really reinvented, such as reinventing music with Motown, and in other cases where we failed to reinvent and suffered greatly. So it's an incredible metaphor, and it's a story that I'm proud to share with the world about Detroit's rise, fall, and now incredible rise again. Anyway, I bring this up because in doing the research for the book, I had the chance to interview several hundred people. So I interviewed uh, billionaires, CEOs, nonprofit leaders, educators, uh, people in the faith-based community, and I tried to boil the common threads down. And ironically, across geographies and genders and professions, there are common threads of the most innovative people, those that embrace the same spirit of reinvention that's so critical today. And that's what I wanted to share with you. I wanted to share with you four big ideas, really, four common threads that the best of the best do on a regular basis. The good news is that they don't require years of study. By giving yourself permission to embrace these ideas, you can put them to use immediately here at Calvin College and certainly in the community of Grand Rapids and, and far beyond. So the first one, the first obsession of reinventors is that they're obsessed with encouraging courage. They encourage courage. It turns out that fear is the single biggest blocker of creativity. Not natural talent, fear. It's that poisonous force that holds us back. And perhaps you've done it. You've been in a meeting and you had a great idea, but you didn't want to share it because you didn't want to look foolish. Maybe a a boss or professor might laugh at you. So the best of the best encourage courage in themselves and those around, knowing that the more ideas that we get, even the crazy weird ones, ultimately may lead to a breakthrough. And there's a big myth. The myth is that creative breakthroughs happen as a lightning bolt. You're in the shower, you have this idea, and then you walk out of the shower and the idea is implemented and you're whisked off to fame and fortune. That's not how innovation happens at all. Generally, innovation happens as a series of setbacks and mistakes and failures that you learn and you pivot and you adapt and you refine. And over time, it leads to a breakthrough. One fun example of that is this product, WD-40. Probably know this, the cure for all things squeaky. The name actually stands, I don't know if you know this though, the name stands for Water Displacement 40th Experiment. Could have been WD-31. But what the makers of WD-40 know and what we all need to embrace is that mistakes are not fatal. Mistakes are the portals of discovery. Another, a couple of fun examples from the research I did on the book. One company that I interviewed issues every year a failure of the year award. So they have this big banquet and they celebrate other stuff, the project of the year and the team member of the year. But in this case, the failure of the year is also celebrated. So this goes for the team or individual that had a great idea. The numbers made sense. They went for it. It didn't work out at all. But instead of firing them, they get a standing ovation. They're slapping high five. Way to fail. (laughs) And the reason they embrace this, obviously they're not trying to create a failing organization, but they realize that these setbacks and failures mean that they're pushing the envelope. They're allowing their creativity to shine. And in turn, they know they're going to be able to make progress. Another fun example in the corporate world, another company that I interviewed issues every team member two corporate get-out-of-jail-free cards every year. 
Here's what they say. Go out on a limb. Be creative. Try new things. Take responsible risks. And if you really screw something up, hand us a card and you're off the hook, no questions asked. On annual reviews, a team leader will actually be disappointed with a team member if they haven't used both of them. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, this feels so risky. Perhaps. But let me challenge you a little bit. What's the risk of not doing something like this? Irrelevance? Mediocrity? Getting passed by? I mean, the city of Detroit wasn't thinking this way through 40 years of decline. But Google thinks this way all the time. So what's happened is that many of us have been brought up and many organizations and people and communities live their lives trying to play it safe only to discover that today playing it safe is one of the riskiest moves of all. Fun example here. Uh, is a scientific experiment that's been done many times that I found fascinating. Uh, well, we're here in Michigan. Does anyone know what kind of fish this is, by the way? Pike. Pike, you guys are good. Some fisher, fishermen and fisherwomen here. Anyway, there's a pike. So it's a, a predatory freshwater fish. You know, it eats the little fish. So scientists do this experiment. They take a huge tank, and on the one end, they put a pike, and the other end, they put lots of these little yummy fish that that pike would just love to eat. The problem is they put a glass divider in the middle of it. So the pike sees the fish, goes over, slams into the divider. Backs up, tries again, slams into the divider. And after a dozen or so attempts, that pike just gets depressed, really. It lingers at the bottom of the tank, feeling frustrated. Next, the scientists remove the glass divider. So you would think that this pike is going to go to town, have a giant feast. The pike just stays there, lingering at the bottom of the tank. Little fish start to get brave, and I've seen videos of this. They start swimming around. They swim right in front of the pike's nose. And you, again, would think the pike is going to have a feast. But what happens every time this experiment is conducted is that pike lingers at the bottom of the tank and dies of starvation. Scientists call this the pike syndrome, the pike syndrome, which is letting an imaginary barrier get in the way of progress. As we know, it doesn't just apply to fish. Think about all the imaginary barriers that may hold us back. Oh, I can't pursue this opportunity. I'm too young. I'm too old. I didn't go to the right graduate school. Uh, I don't have the right contacts. I'm not good at math. I'm not good at writing. I'm not good at public speaking. So very often, the biggest barriers that hold our progress back in our careers and our communities is ourselves. There's a kid named Joseph Hudica. Joseph's eight. He's been labeled the little entrepreneur. So Joseph invents this game called Pucks, P-U-C-K-Z. It's a cross between checkers and hockey. Comes up with this game, launches it, puts it in the Apple iTunes store, He's selling thousands of them a day for 99 cents. You didn't go to the right graduate school? This kid didn't go to the right middle school. (laughs) But he's not letting imaginary barriers get in the way, and neither can we here in Michigan. Okay, let's move on to our second big idea, our second obsession of reinventors. Reinventors, innovators, are obsessed with shedding the past. They are obsessed with shedding the past. So you talk about big problems. Detroit is a very complex problem. As I mentioned earlier, we we endured a ton of decline, which led to all kinds of other problems. Racial divisiveness, public safety issues, crime, 
population decline. You name it, we got it. So how do you fight back with such a complex challenge? What you do is you cannot think of the way you solve problems in the past. In other words, if we were committed to restoring the old Detroit, it would never work, never, because the world is very different than it was when Detroit was successful. How you do it is you have to let go. You have to shed your previously held notions of what Detroit is and can be in order to make progress. I'll give you an example of what we're doing. On a, again, we're one of many, many people doing things, but um, in 2010, I partnered up with someone you may have heard of named Dan Gilbert and uh, another gentleman named Brian Hermelin. And we had this crazy idea. People invest in tech startups in Silicon Valley, as you know. We said, why couldn't they invest in them in Detroit? So we launched a venture capital fund, which is a pool of money to invest in tech startups. And in addition to providing money, we provide coaching and support and mentorship. And our theory is that by backing passionate entrepreneurs, not only will we make some money, we'll make a difference. And those entrepreneurs will build companies that will create jobs, urban density, and hope. And once again, reestablish Detroit as a beacon of opportunity and innovation, helping to diversify the economy. And you probably know this, but 50% of Michigan's college graduates flee the state after graduation. So how do we create an exciting urban work-live-play environment to keep our best and brightest here in Michigan? By the way, they don't typically go from Michigan State or University of Michigan or Calvin College to the suburbs of Chicago or the suburbs of New York. They go because they want young, many young people, millennials, want to be part of an urban experience. They go to New York or Chicago or Boston. So we need to reestablish Detroit as a competitive alternative, something that's compelling. And by the way, it's not Detroit versus Grand Rapids or Lansing or, 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 or Ann Arbor. It's all of us together as Michiganians. Because if Detroit wins, our largest city, we all win. Anyway, so here's the, here's the science experiment. We started investing in tech startups. Our belief is that there's great talent here. There's all kinds of opportunity. Why do you need to be in Silicon Valley to do it? Why can't we do it in Detroit? People thought we were nuts. This is the building that uh, Dan bought. We decided to make it like ground zero of entrepreneurship. It's called the Madison Building. It's right in downtown Detroit, looking over Comerica Park. And we wanted to create a fun environment that was inspiring to generate creative ideas and entrepreneurial vision. When we opened this building, there were no tech companies anywhere to be found in downtown Detroit. Today, about four years later, there are 70 tech companies within one square block of this building. The downtown residential occupancy in Detroit, some of it because of us and some because other people are investing as well, is at 99%. If you want an apartment in the downtown central business district, good luck. Developers are trying to build new stuff and bring old buildings back to life to, to support the demand. I often go for walking meetings, not in January, but in weather permitting. I say, why sit in a boardroom? Let's go for a walk. And I wander in and out of the streets of downtown Detroit. First thing, by the way, never a single public safety issue, never been hassled once. But every time I do these wandering walks, I notice things. A new restaurant, a new art gallery, a, a new store pops up. And what's happening is magical. And to be clear, we still have a long way to go. And, and this decline didn't happen overnight. It's not going to get repaired overnight. But our city is really reinventing itself. And it's, it's unprecedented. It's happening in little spots where someone opens a new restaurant. It's happening in big leaps forward. 
such as new ground transportation. There's something called the M1 rail, which is a light rail system that's going to connect, uh, to start anyway, about seven miles of downtown Detroit. So you can just hop on and off at curbside. Changes like this will make a huge impact. And I really believe this, that we are in the midst of the greatest turnaround story in American history. I think this period will be studied for decades to come as the model for urban revitalization. And it's only happening because we're finally willing, collectively as a community, to shed the past, to stop looking backward and start looking ahead and double down on the challenges of today rather than trying to solve those of yesterday. A smaller example of that in in my proud hometown of Detroit, this is a guy named uh, Kali, K-H-A-L-I. I've become friendly with with Kali over the years. And uh, I'll tell you, he he really grew up in a tough environment. He was abandoned by his parents as an infant. He grew up in foster care, but just in abject poverty. Very few resources, failing school system. He was passed from grade to grade, never learned how to read. So he ends up dropping out in the ninth grade. And with few options and no support, like many in his community, he became involved in drugs and gangs and violence. By the time he was 16, he was both shot and stabbed. But something incredible happened at age 20. Uh, it was a friend of his that made a comment, and, and perhaps it was God's voice speaking, speaking through this friend. But the friend said, you know, all the people you know, Kali, are in one of two columns. They're either dead or in jail. And that was the wake-up call that he needed. He decided, I'm going to commit to making a sharp left turn. I'm going to shed the past. I see where my path is headed. I'm not going to do that anymore. So he got off the drugs, got out of the gangs, and it took him a decade. He took any job he could get, construction jobs, security jobs, tried to build a respectable life for him and his family. But here's the cool part. Once he gets to that point, he decides to give back. He launches something called the Downtown Youth Boxing Gym. And it looks like an uh, an athletic facility, but really it's an educational institution masked as a boxing gym. In other words, boxing is the lure to get kids in, which in and of itself is good. They learn physical fitness and and self-discipline. But more importantly, before they're allowed to train in the ring, they have to spend a couple hours in the back working with an academic coach, six, seven days a week. The high school graduation within a three-mile square radius of this gym in downtown Detroit today is an abysmal 37%. The graduation rate of kids that go through this program, 100%. That is what can happen when we're willing to shed the past. And by the way, Kali, as you know, this guy does not have a Harvard MBA. He has no country club contacts. He didn't come from all kinds of, of wealth and privilege. He drew on an inner resource connected with, I'm sure, his, his faith and, and his love for community and, and his grit and determination and fought out of a very difficult situation and now is making a real difference in his community. Not because he clung to the past, because he shed it. This can happen in lots of different ways. This is the ubiquitous pill bottle that we all know and hate. It's been the design the same way for, for decades. And I'm not an industrial designer, but from a design standpoint, this is a stupid design. I mean, think about it. You've got the writing is, you can't read it, it's sideways. Biggest symbols are the, is a QR code and the medical symbol. You don't need that. The largest print is your name. Presumably, you already know this. And, and not only is it a bad design, actually, there's a real problem. Uh, people in the same household often mistakenly take the wrong medication, and it leads to all kinds of health issues. 
So how is big pharmaceutical companies solving this? How, is, how are the pharmacies solving it? They haven't done a thing. They still use the same dumb pill bottle. Took a graduate student working on her thesis in industrial design to both literally and figuratively flip this upside down. So check it out. It's just way better. It sits on this big base of a cap, so now you can read the print. It's got a patient info pullout card, so you can get lots of more information about the drug. The drug name is prominently displayed, so you don't take the wrong medication. My favorite part, though, are these colorful bands. Each band represents a person in a household. So I could be green, and my wife could be yellow, my son could be blue. So you never take the wrong person's medication. The design was so strong, so profound, that once you got a patent, Target now has embraced this, and they use this new pill bottle system-wide. Again, progress came by shedding the past. All right, our third obsession of reinventors, of innovators, is that they are obsessed with defying tradition. They're obsessed with defying tradition. And I say this respectfully here today because obviously we're part of a faith-based community. And I certainly don't mean this in the sense of defying, you know, closely held personal beliefs. In fact, closely held personal, spiritual, faith-based beliefs are the bedrock. That's the thing that doesn't change. But I'm talking about tradition as it relates to your work, to your community, even in a church sense, being able to change the way that you better serve the community. So again, I, I want to make sure I'm clear on that point. But I'll give you an example of how defying tradition can lead to real progress. This is a guy named Masood Hassani. And Masood grew up just outside Kabul, Afghanistan. And he saw some terrible things as a kid. In his case, largely due to landmines. In the desert region by his home, this was a, a real big problem. In fact, it's a problem worldwide. There's 110 million of these killing machines on our planet. So as a young man, he decided to commit his life to, solving this, to working towards solving this problem. Now, the traditional way that you clear landmines has been done the same since the 1960s, basically. It's expensive, it's dangerous, it's not all that effective. So he could have done the same thing. He could have tried to make a little teeny change in the landmine clearing process. He could have gotten a job at a big landmine clearing company. But Masood Hassani did something different. He defied the traditional approach and tried something completely new. This was his invention. It's called a mine kafon. And in his native language, that means mine exploder. So this device, it's about six feet tall. There's a center core and these light bamboo rods coming off of it. Anyway, those rods are light enough, making this thing able to be wind propelled. It blows gently across the desert. At the end are clay disks, which are heavy enough to detonate landmines. The design is significantly more effective, way less expensive, and, uh, and of course, not dangerous at all. In fact, this has been so successful that it's now on permanent display at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. The power of defying tradition. Sure, many of us fly on airplanes. Airplanes are nearly indistinguishable. You hardly remember which airline you're on half the time. Unless you're in South Africa flying Kalula Airlines, you might notice just a slight difference. So Kalula doesn't take themselves so darn seriously. And in their case, they're not reinventing their product, flying people around in planes. They're reinventing the experience that they have with their customers. There's just no way you can confuse this for a Delta flight. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> this type of thinking goes beyond the paint room. It's part of who they are. It's their culture. 
Here are some actual phrases that have been overheard on Kalula flights by the flight attendants. We're pleased to announce that we have some of the best flight attendants in the industry. Unfortunately, none of them are on this flight. Here's another fun one. Please be aware our toilets are fitted with smoke detectors as well as video cameras for the captain's in-flight entertainment. <laughs> so in an era where bankruptcy is the norm for airlines, they've had terrible financial performance, Kalula not only stands out from a fun factor, they stand out in that their performance has been great. Double and triple-digit growth every year for a decade straight. Now, I'm not suggesting you necessarily in your business or career or, or, you know, here as a student, embrace this type of humor. I'm suggesting that you use your creativity to speak in a way that's authentic but different. In other words, letting go of the traditional approach in favor of something fresh. Another kind of cool example of people defying traditional ways of solving problems. This is the Children's Hospital at the University of Pittsburgh. Now, the folks that run this hospital, their customers are sick kids and their families. How do they make a better experience for their customers? These are the window washers. Here's a very brief video explaining the thinking and the impact that this idea had. Check it out. Children's Hospital has a patient family-centered care initiative. We look at various ways we can make the experience at Children's Hospital better for the families. The window washing event in Superheroes fits well into the patient family-centered care model. We collaborated and had this, come, this project come together. We have four window cleaners dressed up as superheroes and they'll be repelling from the roof, doing window cleaning and entertaining the children. Okay, my name is Mark Rico. I'll be Captain America. I'm Jim Zaremba. I'll be Batman. My name's Edward Hetrick. Today I'm going to be Superman. I'm Rick Bollinger. I'll be Spider-Man. As a father of three, you know, to, to see a kid happy, especially a, a ill or hurt, you know, it really, it, it makes you feel good doing it. Anything we can do to bring a smile to their face, make their day go a little better, it's better for I us. Like These superheroes take the attention away from the medical care and make it an exciting event as if they went someplace to do something fun. They enjoy it, they get very excited about it and talk about it for days and they forget why they were actually here. It's powerful stuff, huh? The interesting thing is the cost to the hospital system zero. The idea came, the window cleaning company happily bought the uniforms, and everybody wins. The hospital is better serving the community. The kids obviously are enjoying it. Even the window washers, who were previously doing a fairly mundane task, now have purpose and meaning to their work. Now, all of us have real problems in our lives. It could be an academic challenge, a community challenge, a challenge in our, in our church. Next, and, and your instinct may be, I got to throw money or resources or time at this problem. Next time, try throwing your imagination at it. You may end up with a far better result. So basically what I'm suggesting you do is do a judo flip. In other words, when you got a problem, try flipping the problem up upside down, and perhaps you can look at it in a fresh, different way to reinvent a better solution. Good example of staying in medical for a second. This is a guy named uh, Doug Dietz. He's the head of the General Electric Division that makes MRI machines. Problem is, kids hate these machines. 
Turns out 70% of small children needed to be sedated before going into these life-saving tests. Since he couldn't change the machine, he changed the experience. Now, he did this for the right reasons, to help kids. But the story gets even better because he ends up creating a whole new line for GE called the Adventure Series. It's a highly differentiated, highly profitable division. Doug got a promotion, everybody wins. Same type of creative thinking in action. So as mentioned earlier, my, I started my career as a, as a jazz musician. I just want to share one, one quick example from that. The, when I was studying music in college, I had a guitar teacher, and he forced me to remove strings from my guitar. One, two, sometimes three strings. So you would think that with fewer resources, I would be less creative. Only makes sense, right? The exact opposite happened. When I had fewer resources, it forced me to get rid of my old way of looking at things. I had to shed old patterns and discover new ones. So actually, my creativity went up when I had fewer resources. I know most of us don't have unlimited resources, but you can't let that get in the way of creative problem solving. And like I said, often constrained resources yield even more creative solutions. A fun example of that, I'll show you another quick video, DHL. Now, they're a big company, but they are smaller and have fewer resources than their bigger competitors, like UPS and FedEx. I want to show you a very creative way that they are taking those competitors head on, not by having more money, but by having more creativity. Check this one out. In many countries, DHL has more locations, more vehicles, and more employees. That's why DHL is faster. However, to communicate this with a classic advertising campaign is expensive. So why couldn't the competitors advertise for DHL? For that purpose, giant packages were taped all over with thermoactive foil and cooled down below the freezing point. In this way, the competitors picked up a black package that transformed back at temperatures above freezing and delivered the message in the most beautiful colors to addresses in the city that were not that easy to find. After all, they were paid reasonably. The result, an innovative way to communicate. And everyone played along. Well, almost everyone. Thank you very much. Now think about for a second the economics here. I know we're not all in advertising, but if you were to reach millions of people, what are you going to do, run a Super Bowl ad and pay $3 million? In this case, they shipped some packages, they hired a film crew, and this wasn't about the local people in that city that viewed this live. It's about the 25 million people that have seen it since on YouTube. Think about the dollars they spent versus the impact they made, and that's creativity in action. Okay, so we're going to hit on our fourth big idea, and I, I'll leave some time to take a few questions. But the fourth obsession of reinventors is that they are obsessed not with just little incremental gain. They are obsessed with pushing the boundaries. When you think about Cirque du Soleil, you may have seen this. This is, for those that haven't, it's an unbelievable uh, visual and theatrical experience. So they were competing at the time with Barnum & Bailey Circus. 
The way most people compete is if you're competing with Barnum and Bailey Circus, you say, hey, let's add one more elephant and we'll be a little bit better. Cirque du Soleil did something instead that was way on the edge. They injected gorgeous settings and beautiful music and incredible theatrical performance and completely reimagined what a circus performance could be. Since that time, Cirque du Soleil is a multi-billion dollar company. Barnum and Bailey Circus has filed for bankruptcy. Again, it was somebody who pushed the boundaries. I mean, Pixar is another amazing example of this. They didn't say, we're going to take on Mickey Mouse by having one extra character. They said, we're going to inject computer animation into cartoon animation film and change the world. Not only did they do that with their first movie, Toy Story, in this movie, WALL-E, there were 43 minutes without a single word of dialogue. Unheard of, pushing the boundaries, yet the picture was fabulously successful, a box office smash. Pushing the boundaries. And I'll end with one, one just sort of fun example. Uh, so this is a guy named Tom Licks, L-I-X. Tom is an entrepreneur. He's had sort of a checkered past. He, he had some wins and some losses. Anyway, he starts a business, raises some money, goes for it, and it totally fails. This guy loses everything. All his investors lost every penny. Tom was broke. He's about to lose his house. Well, what do most of us do in that scenario? Most of us go run for the hills of safety and take some soulless job and hide away for the rest of our careers. Not Tom. Tom has the idea, I'm going to start a whiskey company. Apparently, he loves whiskey. Well, who doesn't? But Tom really loves whiskey. <laughs> in fact, now, now that he, uh, later on, he, uh, apparently he was in the uh, military as a young man, and an officer once trained him to make hooch. So he now likes to say he's government trained in the field. So Tom's going to launch a whiskey company. The problem is that to make a good whiskey, you have to age it in charred oak wood barrels for a decade or more. Now, Tom didn't have a decade. Tom's about to lose his house. So here's what he does. He takes the same type of push-the-boundaries approach that I've been discussing this afternoon. He says, if I can't put the whiskey in the barrels, what if I put the barrels in the whiskey? So here's what he does. He takes these big stainless steel tanks, puts raw whiskey in there, and then chops up pieces of charred oak wood uh, or charred barrel wood. He puts it in there, and then he applies pressure. It turns out this wood is very porous, like a sponge. So when you apply pressure, it soaks up the liquid. When you release the pressure, the liquid comes back out, and it picks up the flavor profile of the wood. So he puts the liquid in the tank, puts the pieces of wood in there, applies pressure, releases it, applies it, releases it. Instead of making good whiskey in a decade, Tom is making it in a week. So now you might say, okay, he's making it in a week. For sure, he's going to hide that fact. He's going to call it like Kentucky bourbon, put it on the shelf. Nobody's going to know the difference. Not Tom. He calls it Cleveland whiskey. <laughs> His hometown. Right on the label, radically different. Okay, he's making it in a week. He's making it in Cleveland. It's got to be the discount product, right? Not Tom. He charges a 30% premium to the national brand. The result, even running three shifts a day, Tom can't make it fast enough in a week to keep up with demand. It's the hottest whiskey brand out there. The company's doing great. Tom's back on his feet, and, and, and everybody's happy. So the point I'm making is that Tom would have never got his way out of this problem had he done things the old way. He had to push the boundaries in order to make a difference. In the same way, we have to push the boundaries in our own lives to make a real difference. So I have a challenge for you. I have a challenge for you. 
We've talked about reinventing and being more creative, but I'd like you to, over the next seven days, put your detective hat on. You don't have to solve the problem in seven days, but I'd like you to be on the lookout. What's one thing in your life that could be reinvented? Maybe it's the way that you study for your, uh, for your English paper. Maybe it's the way that you interact with a loved one. Maybe it's the way that you conduct business with a customer. Maybe it's the way that you interact with your church members. Just look for one idea, one opportunity for reinvention. And here's what's going to happen. It's contagious. So that one idea is going to lead to the second idea and the third idea. And 30 days from now, if you get into this groove, you're going to start really embracing this God-given gift, uh, this gift that we all have, this sense of wonder and opportunity, of creativity. And I started by showing you these slides. And of course, companies are easy to put on a screen, but this applies to communities and even people who lost their luster and became irrelevant. Both our biggest threat and our biggest opportunity. But the opportunity is that for each of us, if we embrace these principles of reinvention, we can go on to do incredible things and make the difference and the impact that we're here on this planet to make. So let's do that. Let's use today as a jumping off point, an opportunity to let our creativity shine, even if we haven't used it for decades, an opportunity to take on the status quo and to make improvements, an opportunity to let our imagination soar, to make a real difference in our community, and ultimately to seize the enormous opportunity that's waiting for all of us here at Calvin College, just outside those doors. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Josh. Uh, we've got some time for some questions and answers, so if you have uh, a comment or a question for him, I uh, want to write it on a card. Um, you can hold that up, and we'll collect it, and we'll get started with some that came in um, online. Uh, the first one has to do with, um, I have a couple questions that came in about uh, low income, about poverty in Detroit, and about working to rebuild Detroit. Um, how do you go about doing that without gentrifying the community and pushing out the low income families? It's a good question, and it's a really difficult question. And, and by the way, I, I'm, uh, of course, neither am I Mayor Daly. I'm also not the mayor of Detroit, so I don't have all the <laughs> answers. Um, but I, from a business perspective, perspective, I'll say this. We have to increase the economic base of Detroit to make a real difference. Because the most important pressing issues actually don't require creativity. They require money. I mean, it doesn't take a creative leap to figure out we need to have our streetlights on and our garbage picked up and enough police on the street to, to, to stop uh, public safety issues. So I believe that the economic development that's happening in the city of Detroit today will increase the tax base, which in turn will make a difference in many of those people who are, are in the biggest set of needs. Uh, we need money to provide more for teachers. Uh, so, so again, I think that economics are going to play a big role. Um, that being said, right now there really are two Detroits. I hate to say it. Downtown Detroit, Midtown Detroit are fairly vibrant. I mean, the, the buildings are coming back to life. There's a lot of hard work still, but it's, it's coming. I can see that. The 139 square miles in the neighborhoods is a different story. And that's a very, very difficult question. Uh, again, I wish I had better answers, and I know there's not a silver bullet. To me, a lot of it gets back to education. Uh, and I think that the good news is we don't necessarily have to have complete reform in the school system to do that. One quick example there's, a, uh, there's an organization called Beyond Basics, 
which uh, goes into the most challenged uh, middle schools and high schools and helps kids with literacy. Again, not a giant creative leap, but literacy is a huge barrier. I mean, if you can't read, you can't operate a cash register at McDonald's and let alone go on to, to be uh, you know, a, a well-paid citizen. So because of literacy problems, it leads to crime, it leads to prison. You've got this um, school-to-jail pipeline that people talk about. And anyway, this program, Beyond Basics, goes in there and does the hard work. They work eight weeks one-on-one with a kid to help them get up to grade-level reading. And it's working. It's working. It's amazing. They take a kid who's in 12th or, or, or 10th grade who can't read a, a second-grade book, and they get him fully up to grade level within an eight-week period. Now, that's a grassroots program, and there are many, many more grassroots programs that are happening. So I think it's got to come from the top down. I think the politicians now are, are, are aligned properly. The corruption is gone. I think our governor is doing a very good job and working hard. But it's also got to come from the community and, and bottom up. And again, it's not going to be solved overnight, but I'm very optimistic um, that, that we're on the right path. Great. Okay, a question that came in on Twitter from Failure Lab here in Grand Rapids. They're wondering, um, what has been your most impactful failure? Mm. How much time you got? <laughs> Funny, I've, I've talked to very, very you know, billionaire-type people, and the interesting thing is you'd think that they just win all the time. Not only do they win more, they fail more because they're willing to embrace that type of thinking. I have made dozens of failures, and I still make them regularly. Ask my wife. Uh, but one, one quick example is um, I was, um, let's think of a good one for you. Well, I'll tell you a failure that, that had a happy ending. Uh, we were running early on, my, my company, ePrize, we, did, uh, we do online sweepstakes and, and, and games and such. Anyway, United Airlines hires us to build a promotion. It was a million-dollar giveaway. And this was a huge moment as an entrepreneur. Like, we just got this big brand client. We're so excited. And we get into the research because we were responsible for the legal administration of this giveaway. Turns out that in Brazil, one of the countries that had to be eligible, you had to do the drawing on Brazilian soil. So we're thinking, sweet, we're going to Rio. How cool is this? Until we learned that in Australia, which also had to be an eligible country, a drawing of this nature had to be done within the physical boundaries of Australia. So the failure in this case was I took this opportunity. I didn't know what I was doing. And we had a real problem on our hands. I didn't have an extra million dollars sitting around to give away two prizes. I'm not going to run an illegal contest. I certainly didn't want to go back to my big new client and tell him how stupid I am. I can't take your business. So the happy ending here, so, so I mean, talk about a failure. If, I, if the story ended there, I'd have no company. We would be gone. The turnaround came because of the culture that we built, a culture that celebrated ideas. A single person's idea, not me as the CEO, not anybody with a fancy title, a single person in our legal department solved this problem for us. And her idea, not exaggerating, saved my company. The idea, which we did, was to do the drawing at the Brazilian embassy in Australia. Mm. <laughs> Think about it. It's technically Brazilian soil, technically within the boundaries of Australia. Save my company. <laughs> and <laughs> the, the, only, the only contribution I made is that we, we accepted crazy ideas. I think in most companies, if that, that, that young woman worked at that company, she wouldn't have shared it because the idea was so out there. Because we built a culture that loved new ideas, she was comfortable bringing it forward. Great. I've got a couple of questions that come in both on Twitter and through email, wondering about um, schools and education and what ideas you might have for innovation and reinvention within the schools. Yeah, so I, I'm, it's a big passion point of mine. I, I, and uh, as a parent and, and someone who believes deeply in education, 
I, as I mentioned earlier, I think that we have an outdated system. And the system has largely taught us to be very good at following the rules and not very good at dealing with ambiguity and figuring things out ourselves. One example of that that really strikes me, when I was a kid, I played with Legos. I love Legos. So when, when I was a kid, people of my age, the, the kids, the, the Lego sets were these modular blocks. They didn't have anything on the cover of it. You just used this modular blocks and used your imagination to build, build something. Then you'd bust it apart and you'd build it again. That's what Legoing was. I was building a Lego project with my son, Noah, a couple years ago. And we built this thing. It was a Lego Death Star. Two and a half hours in, I realized something was wrong. The instruction manual was the size of a telephone book. It was 190 steps of detailed instructions of where to put every specialized piece. And that's one of many examples of what's happened is that instead of learning to nurture kids' creativity, we're teaching them to be rule followers, but that skill set doesn't help you as much in the real world as it used to. Today, the world is too competitive, too fast-moving to follow an operating manual and expect to win in any career. So what we really need to do is be fostering creative thinking. A couple crazy ideas, forgive me. One would be to have a mandatory course in middle school called Making Mistakes. Seriously. Teach kids how to make mistakes. Teach them about the difference between a, 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 an irresponsible risk and a, a responsible risk. Teach them what's an acceptable mistake, what's not. How do you learn from mistakes? How have many of the biggest inventions in the world come from a series of mistakes? Let's teach kids that. Some of the things I would avoid, perhaps. Sorry if I ruffle any feathers. I was helping my son with long division one time, by hand. And so we're doing long division. I thought about it. Okay, I mean, I, I'm, I'm no Dan Gilbert, but, but I've... I've raised hundreds of millions of dollars. I've been involved in 100-plus companies. I've hired uh, you know, 10,000 employees over my career. I've never once used long division. Never. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that math is bad. Math is great. In fact, math should be all about creative problem solving. But doing something by hand that you're never going to use in life, to me, there are better uses of, of, of educational time that we could be helping our kids learn to adapt, learn to innovate on their own. Great. Um, again, I've gotten a couple of these types of questions, wondering if everything needs to change to survive, or are there some tradi tra traditional institutions or products that aren't broke? And if so, what gives those traditions staying power? Excellent question. Excellent question. Uh, I get asked something similar often, and people often bring up the example of New Coke. Remember that? The Coca-Cola, mm. the biggest brand in the world, launches New Coke, and it was a total failure, almost tanked the company. So I don't think that change for the sake of change is the right approach. I think that challenging conventional wisdom regularly rather than blindly saluting the flag of the past is the right approach. And if old Coke is still working and it's still relevant and if that's still the best answer for today, keep making old Coke. The only time you switch to something new is if it's relevant in that day. So, you know, for example, if you are still writing in triplicate instead of using email, that's probably an old way approach. It could be reinvented. But you shouldn't just reinvent for the heck of it. And we're talking a little bit backstage today, and I think, you know, uh, faith-based thinking is one of those areas, you know, that we hold dear. And in fact, that's the bedrock. I am not suggesting that we take everything in our lives and throw it out the window just for the heck of it. As I mentioned, you know, you know people's faith is, is their bedrock. And, and that's stuff that doesn't, obviously, we, we don't want to mess with and change. But I do think we can think about how do we apply those beliefs? How do we apply those philosophies to, to modern-day problems? And not, not so much in a religious perspective, but in our philosophy. So if you, if you have the right set of values and integrity and ethics, those things should not change, clearly. But the tactical stuff in our lives at least should be considered, 
Should we make a change or should we keep it the same? All right, and uh, finally, we've got a question from a student um, talking about your, your connection to jazz. And is there any correlation between the impact of jazz and the creativity you feel is necessary for a city's or an individual's growth? Thank you for asking that question. Um, the, the neat thing about jazz, I don't know if we have jazz fans, it's a bit of a polarizing thing, but uh, I love jazz. And, and the reason I love it, it's, it's first of all, it's, it's one of the true American art forms that exists, purely American art form. The other thing about it is that it's art that happens in real time. So if you're painting and you're having a bad day, you can go back, you can take a break, you can touch something up. Not in jazz. You're creating spontaneously in front of a live audience. And you're also not creating yourself. You're creating with others. It's a, it's a collaborative, spontaneous creation, which is an amazing thing. It's scary. It's risky. And less than 1% of the notes when you play jazz are on the written page. The rest you have to improvise. You have to innovate in real time. I think it's a perfect metaphor for what we face in our communities, in our companies, and in our, and, and, and in our careers. Because in the past, maybe the metaphor was that of a classical musician. Play the notes exactly on the page. They're all right in front of you. Get very good tactically. You just follow the instructions, play what's on the page, and you're good. The problem is that doesn't work anymore. The people that have done that in their careers have been laid off. I mean, this is what a big part of the problem has been in Michigan and beyond. So I think our job today, whether you like jazz music or not, is to embrace the jazz, jazz mindset, which is that you're going to get an assignment that has two or three markings on that page. It doesn't have all the answers, and it's up to you to figure it out. It's up to you to use your judgment and creativity in real time, to take responsible risks, to make decisions in the face of ambiguity, and ultimately those skills will allow you to win. And I say win, win for whatever that means to you, to, to be uh, more effective in your church, to be more effective in your community or your company or your career or better serving those around you. But if we can embrace that jazz musician mindset, I really do believe it can help us um, both, both in academics and in the broader sense. All right. Well, Josh will be available in the lobby for um, any questions that you may have and possibly to sign some books. So uh, thank you very much, Josh, for coming today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.